0: Good afternoon, I'm Brent Holland and welcome, welcome to the show. This afternoon we celebrate a momentous speech, a speech that raised the spirits of a generation indeed of the world and it resounds still to today. The speech I'm talking about of course is Dr. King's I Have a Dream Speech. August 28th, 1963, he gave that speech, and we are celebrating it today with Mark Lane. Mark Lane knew Dr. King personally. As a matter of fact, he organized the first mass rally for Dr. King in Harlem. We're going to get into that in part two. This is a two-part series. Today, we're going to be discussing Mark Lane's role as a freedom rider. Mark Lane, of course, just to give you a little bit of quick background, other shows in the archives, www.brenthollandshow.com are there. He was the lawyer for AIM, the American Indian Movement, the uprising at Wounded Knee, 1973. He survived, miraculously, that horrible night in Jonestown when people were out killing each other. That's in the archives as well. He was the lawyer for Lee Harvey Oswald, the purported assassin... Of John F. Kennedy. He was the campaign manager for John F. Kennedy when Kennedy was running for president. Knew Bobby Kennedy very well, the attorney general. We're going to be talking about that this afternoon, his relationship with Bobby before and after the assassination. I'm trying to think if there's anything that Mark Lane hasn't done. You know, he even ran for vice president. I almost said president. Dick Gregory and Mark Lane ran for a president and vice president in the 60s. That's a true story. Was instrumental in civil rights. And when I say instrumental, he knew Dr. King personally, and he was a freedom rider. And that's what we're going to talk about in part one of this two-part series. Freedom riders, folks. Mark Lane was on a bus when the Ku Klux Klan came on and they were none too happy to see him and a busload of Freedom Rider civil rights advocates mark lane
1: so before we left i must say that i had been the campaign manager for john kennedy in the new york area when he was running for the presidency he was senator kennedy and i was running for the state legislature and he asked me to help run his campaign and i did and so i worked closely with bobby in that campaign after they were elected and bobby then became attorney general i called him and i said "Percy and i are going down there we expect to have some uh, protection we then traveled went by bus in alabama people boarded the bus we first we stopped at a, at a little luncheon counter and asked for a cup of coffee each. We want to integrate that. The woman came over and she said, He's a N word, and you're an lover, and neither of you can meet here because you're together. So leave. And we got on the bus, and a group of people, members of the Klan the Life Citizens Council, came on, and they had clubs, and they're coming down right in the back of us. And they came on, and I said to Percy, Do you believe in
0: nonviolence? He said, not right now. I said, neither do I. This afternoon, Living History, Mark Lane, The Freedom Riders, and Dr. King, right now on Brent Holland. And folks, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Mark Lane. Mark Lane, real living history, um, was involved with the Kennedy assassination, of course. The shows are all there. AIM, American Indian Movement. He was a lawyer for them. Jonestown Survivor, living history again today, folks. Mark Lane was a Freedom Rider. Now I hear you all, what the heck is a Freedom Rider? We're going to tell you what that was on the anniversary of Dr. King's famous I Have a Dream speech. Mark, welcome back to the show and thank you for joining us.
1: Okay. Thank you so much. It's good to talk with you again, and to the folks in Canada. Listen, um, the Freedom Ride was a term used to describe people who thought that American citizens black and white American citizens could travel in their own country and that that was not a crime. And the way this all began is it was that a group of people from the Congress of Racial Equality traveled to the South. This guy named Jim Peck in it. Jim Peck was the son of a Peck and Peck, a very famous store in New York City, famous big place, clothing manufacturer, I think, and sales. He was an heir to the fortune. It didn't make any difference to him. He never cared about that part of life remarkably enough. And he cared about justice and he went down, became a Freedom Rider, and as they were traveling, a group of thugs, racists, sported the bus, grabbed people, and beat them. Almost killed Jim Peck. His head was split open. He had difficulty getting into a hospital. They wouldn't take him in. From that came a a movement called the Freedom Riders. People would go together, whites and blacks, and travel from the north together, and try to get to Jackson, Mississippi, knowing if they got there, they would be arrested and some people got to Jackson, Mississippi. And for that, for traveling together, black and white together, they were sent to prison for a very long time in one of the worst penitentiaries kind of in the United States, in Mississippi, where they were actually brutalized. It was the summertime and there were and they were bitten, and the air conditioner, of course, they were bitten by mosquitoes. There was nothing there. there were no showers. It was really horrible, horrible treatment. And people around the country decided they had to respond to this and I was asked by a, a black minister, a dear friend of mine, Reverend Eugene Saint Clair calendar at a major church in Harlem to become a freedom writer for the church, together with Percy Sutton. Gene later became the director of the Urban League in the United States and held a number of very important posts. Percy later became the borough president of Manhattan. At the time, he was the president of the uh, NAACP, and I was a member of the New York State Legislature. And uh, we checked out calendars. And I remember it very well because I'd flown a lot from New York City, but always from LaGuardia, where until then was not as Wild Airport, later right? named JFK after the assassination. In any event, I had never traveled from Newark. I don't know why we found a good flight from Newark to Atlanta. And so Percy and I took off, very distinguished, black gentleman from the South, from I think North Carolina, wonderfully dressed, beautifully dressed, and wonderful voice speaking, is very sophisticated. Two of us went together, both about six, each of us about Six feet tall, a little over, and uh, in pretty good shape. And we went down to Atlanta. We had no problem getting a, a taxi in Atlanta. black driver drove us. But we didn't know where to stay. And Percy said, I know her. And he gave the address to the driver. And we went to the Black YMCA, where I am sure no white person has ever been
0: before. You know, Mark, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but I had no idea. The YMCA's were segregated as well.
1: Everything was segregated. Wow. Everything. Every, I mean, everything was segregated in America. In Washington, D.C., there was, restaurants were segregated. Restaurants were segregated. I, I went down there with Howard University and started to integrate restaurants that were segregated in the 1950s. My father, before that, had gone down to, he, had a, he was an accountant, he had a case, and he went down there. He went to Washington, D.C., and he was picked up by a taxi driver, and he came back and told us this This is in the 40s. Late 40s, he talked to this taxi guy who was black, and he said, you know, the veterans are given white taxi cabs so that everyone will know the war just ended, these are the veterans, and you patronize them if you can. And he said, except the black Americans, even though they're veterans, even wounded veterans who came back, were not allowed to have white taxi cabs. They're only for white veterans. There we were, and we stayed with black YMCA, and Chris had a great sense of humor. These lots of black, elderly black men was sitting around there staring at me and we just had a little cache case each and a little little bag Percy bent over and i was like you have to know how sophisticated it was how beautiful you spoke he said that's all right mr mark i'll take your luggage for you and everybody stared, of course, he was just joking, and uh, but it was like the most embarrassing moment on the trip, and there were a lot of ones who were still ahead of us. And I saw him later up in the room, and he couldn't stop laughing. Every time he thought about it, Just, I think I'm going to get even with you for this one day. Uh, of course, I never did. We then traveled, went by bus in Alabama. People boarded the bus. We, first, we stopped at a, at a little luncheon counter and asked for a cup of coffee each. We wanted to integrate that. The woman came over, and she said, he's a N-word. And you're a lover, and neither of you can meet here because you're together. So leave. And we got on the bus, and a group of people, members of the Klan, the White Citizens Council, came on, and they had clubs. And they were coming down in the back of the bus. And they came on, and I said to Percy, do you believe in nonviolence? He said, not right now. I said, neither do I. We each have a hard attache case. I said, we each were up six feet to them. We stood up and we brought the aisle and we raised them. And the first guys that came toward us were going to get injured. There's no question about that. They looked around and they left. So before we left, I must say that I had been the campaign manager for John Kennedy in the New York area when he was running for the presidency. He was Senator Kennedy, and I was running for the state legislature, and he asked me to help run his campaign, and I did. And so I worked closely with Bobby in that campaign after they were elected, and Bobby then became attorney general. I called him, and I said, Chrissy and I are going down there. We expect to have some uh, protection on this trip with two American citizens traveling in America. We expect some protection. And he said, well, it's better that you don't go. I said, yeah, I didn't call for advice. I'm just telling you what we're doing what we want in any event there was no protection and we went stayed at the home some really courageous black lawyers in alabama and then we took a plane to jackson mississippi because no one had tried to integrate the airport there and we landed in jackson mississippi and with a new airport very fancy the airport was basically deserted there was i only saw one person there was an elderly woman in the corner well i would probably wouldn't call her elder if i saw her now because of my age but anyway she seemed elderly then i was very young it was 1960 june 1960 she was knitting and two men walked up to us. one was really dressed in a fancy uniform he was the chief of police and with him was another guy, lieutenant or something. And he said, you know, Mr. Lane? I said, yes. He said, well, you can't stay here. And I said, well, why is that? He said, because you're together with him, pointed to Percy Sutton, and there might be a disturbance of the peace if you stay here. I looked around, I said, that little old lady over there who's knitting, if she starts something, Chief, I think even your troops can take care of her. but of course it had nothing to do with disturbing the peace. And then we were arrested for being together in an American city in America, member of the state legislature, head of a civil rights organization, arrested in support for just being there. And uh, he said we sat in the back of the of the car. And the chief said, you're really a member of the state legislature? I said, yes, I am. He said, I heard about you. Have you seen our state capital?" I said, no. He said, what's yours like? I said, it's not much. It's an old but It's an old building. It's not really very attractive. He said, let me see our hours. And he took me to this beautiful building. He said, that's our state capitol. I said, very nice. And then he said, have you seen the old one we had with the purple dome? I said, no. He said to the driver, take them to the old one. So we went there and told him I thought it was very nice. But I realized, of course, that Percy had been excluded. He was not talking to him. He wouldn't even look at him, just talked to me. And so I didn't want this to go on this way any longer. So I said, I want to thank you, uh, Chief. He said, what for? I said, because, you know, we traveled from New Jersey here to Jackson. And the biggest problem he had, because we stayed together. We stayed in the Negro YMCA. He said, you what? <laughs> I said, well, we stayed in the Negro YMCA. <laughs> (laughs) in Atlanta, and then we stayed at some homes of some wonderful lawyers in Alabama. But the only thing we had in mind was the problems, how we even get into Jack from the airport, because there would be no cab that would take the two of us. So I want to thank you for giving us this integrated ride (laughs) into into the city. and he turned. So that was the end of our friendly relationship. He turned to the guard and to the driver lieutenant and said, "Take him to the jail." Oh. So we went to the jail, and immediately we were separated. He was sitting in Percy. We were handcuffed. Percy was sent to the Negro section. I was, I was sent to the white section. I've been arrested maybe twenty times in the Civil Rights Movement. It's, it's uh, people knew that I was going there. The press knew I was going there. It was not like other people who had uh, who didn't know what's going to happen. But even so, the second that and I got. Uh, Better protected than any freedom rider ever. Most of these guys are young kids, young girls, boys. they in Mississippi for the first time, as was I, but everybody knew I was there. I felt well protected. But I tell you, when that jail door slams and you're alone in there and you have no power and your life is decided, everything about your life is decided by someone else, it's a bizarre feeling. In any event, uh, after I was there about two minutes, a guard came out and said, telephone call for you, Mr. Lane. (laughs) I went into the office, and it was the New York Times, and I talked with them, and then I went back to the jail cell, and they said, you got another call, and it was uh, another newspaper, and then it was a television station. After the third one, they said, no more calls. And I was in there. We were finally bonded out and we went back to New York City because we pleaded not guilty and uh, we said we're going to fight this thing out. But the second we were brought in there, we were found guilty without a trial the system in Mississippi. It was then. Maybe it still is. Maybe if you're challenging racism. I don't know. But it was not a trial. It was a conviction and a sentence. The trial comes when you appeal from it. And I was sentenced to four months in a horrible penitentiary. So it was not just a joke. It was a, a serious thing. And we knew that. That we came back. They all they set the same date for everyone to return. All the Freedom Riders, a couple of hundred of them, all coming back the same date. And we met with the Congress of Racial Equality in New York that had organized a lot of the Freedom Rise. They didn't organize ours. We did our own. The leaders were there and said, listen, when we go down there this time, we cannot violate local ordinances because we've run out of money for bail. We've run out of money for lawyers. We've got to stop this thing now. And Percy and I said, you mean where it says drinking fountain whites? and drinking fountain colored. I'm, Percy's supposed to use the colored one it, and I'm supposed to use the white one, where it says white men's rooms or colored men's rooms. I go to one, Percy goes to another, and same here. they said, yes. I said, well, that's why we went down there, to stop that, we're not going to do it. And they said, well, we don't have any money to bond you out. And Percy said, well, then we'll stay in, but we're not going back and yielding to what we went down there to fight against. And so we said we'd go first. So Percy got there the day before, and we walked into the courthouse, and... We got into the courthouse, and all the signs had been changed. It was defendants' men's rooms, defendants' ladies' rooms, defendants' fountains, etc. So blacks and whites who were defendants, us, could drink at the same drinking fountain for the first time since Reconstruction. And the same thing was true that the restrooms had been desegregated. And I looked at Percy and said, you know, after we leave, these cardboard signs are coming down. Mm-hmm. He said, I know that Mark, but I'll tell you something. One day all of the signs will come down. All the signs will come down. And uh So we went there and we were found not guilty because they said, how could it be a disturbance of the peace when, in fact, there was nobody there to disturb? We were found not guilty, and that was the end of that case. The interesting thing after that was that some years later, after integration had come, maybe 20 years later, I was invited to speak at a a university in alabama very close to the city where percy and i were threatened it was a bus station cafe where we had been threatened and they refused service to us Percy and i went there originally but now i was on my own and i went back as it was a lecture in a college in the town in alabama it was about the kennedy assassination i asked one of the students there to drive me to that bus station they wanted to be back there and there was the same luncheonette that I had been there 20 years before. It had aged, but not graciously. I sat in the corner, and I looked at the menu, and I thought of Percy. And for a moment, he was there beside me, smiling, as I saw a couple of young black teenagers enter the restaurant, order hamburgers and Cokes, and laugh about some private matter. They had no idea of the drama that had been played out there 20 years before in that same room. Then a waitress handed me a menu, and I glanced at it without ordering, and I left. There was nothing else there that I wanted. Wow. And that was that was our freedom ride. And it was uh, one of the most incredible experiences of my life. And I think about it, first, he just died a little while ago. (sighs) And I I thought about this when I read that he had died. He was a really remarkable, wonderful person. And he knew better than I what we were facing in the South. I heard the stories. He lived there in North Carolina. He knew, and he was black going back there. I was white. I remember the state legislature. The story got tremendous coverage throughout the United States. They always say, two men, Mark Lane White, and Percy Sutton Negro, et cetera. But every story was Mark Wayne White and Percy Sutton Negro. <laughs> and uh, So that, that was the story, and that encouraged other people. But the bravest people were the young kids who went, and the bravest people, of course, the people who stayed there. We were just there for a few days. But the people who stayed there, who lived there, who had a fight against this, rage, had a rage against our lives every single day. And, you know, we played a small part because we helped to publicize it. But uh, the people who stayed behind, they paid a much higher.
0: But Mark, talk about chutzpah on yours and Percy's part, because you had no idea if you were going to be killed, just taken out and lynched, as so often happened in the South. So that's chutzpah and courage beyond belief, folks. We're speaking with Mark Lane, of course, today, and we're celebrating the anniversary of I Have a Dream, that famous speech by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Mark was right there, as always, in the thick of things. And as he just said, he was talking with Bobby Kennedy. Now, my question leads up to Bobby Kennedy. What was his reaction? You had said he had warned you not to go, but obviously the Kennedys kind of changed at that point. Well,
1: I'll tell you what they did. But I'll tell you, the Kennedys, John Kennedy made a statement that the Freedom Ride should stop, that they were just causing a problem. but. You know, the problem was that blacks and whites were not allowed to travel together in their own country. None of us were causing a problem. We were exposing the problems. So that was Kennedy's first position, John Kennedy. And later when I came back and I criticized Bobby, because I said, we asked for protection. They don't want to kill this And he said, I don't know what Mark is complaining about. We had FBI agents on the buses, wherever he was. Well, what they going to be, witnesses to our murder? <laughs> I, I didn't, they were supposed to protect us because we were exercising rights as American citizens traveling to the country, our own country. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if, if we could have done that in France or Germany, a country we'd beaten not too long before in a, an international war, World War Two. We could have traveled to Japan together. Another country was defeated. We could have traveled to Italy, a country which was part of the Axis in World War II. So we could have been to any of those places, England, France, Sweden, Norway, any place, and would not have had a problem. And our problem was in our own country. I thought that the president and the attorney general had a responsibility to make us, at least as, and in Canada, of course, we could have traveled as well, but we they had a responsibility to make our country at least as democratic and as decent as the countries to the north and south of us and all throughout Asia and Europe but they declined to do that until the American people said enough it's got to stop and now of course it's a different world here as I said you go after that that coffee shop and the blacks and whites eating there and the they young kids they don't even know what had happened there before
0: unbelievable how it changes what was the turning point for the candidates to turn their position around on civil rights
1: I don't know if there was one thing but the civil rights movement had become extremely important very important and Dr. King of course was the great leader the greatest leader in my view in the history of America because he had insisted he took that courage I mean he went to jail so many times never knew if he was going to yeah. live when yeah. he came out kept on going back and back back and back, and it was never ending until he was killed, not by James Earl but until he was killed, but it was under his leadership that the movement became so powerful, and it was, and this is a thing to remember when you think about Dr. King's speech, that he was at an airport, I think it was Atlanta, and he was with Ralph Abernathy, his closest friend, and traveling companion, the fellow minister, leader of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and they were going down to one of the islands, the meter of Bahamas, or someplace. Dr. King was going to finish a book. When he traveled, he had two suitcases, one had my clothing, he had my books, and Magazines, everything, and he stopped off. They ordered dinner at this restaurant at the airport. Martin went back and put some magazines he had a copy of Rampart, which had it on the cover it Was this Vietnamese girl who was naked and just napalm had dropped and she's, I don't know if you remember the cover, it was this heartbreaking this young girl, little girl.
0: Oh, that's flying. that famous picture of that nine-year-old little girl running naked after the napalms right in the back of her.
1: He saw that and the steak arrived and Martin looked at it and just pushed it away and Rob said, doesn't it taste good? Because you're taking one bite and put it away. Doesn't it taste good? He said, nothing will ever taste good to me until we come out against this war. Because everybody had urged him, many people urged him, not to oppose the war. And when he did make a statement against the war, he said that it was a very strong statement. And he said that it was, when he came back from his his trip and write his book he came back and he said that he had a major college he said that uh, the Vietnamese people must look at us the way people in Europe Jews and others looked at the Nazis and it was a very powerful speech. and he he called for everyone to pose the war so what he was doing now is he was taking this massive civil rights movement and adding to it the massive growing anti-war movement which was primarily white but not entirely and the civil rights movement had many blacks and was led by blacks but there are some white people there too, but he's merging this into one integrated operation to oppose the war. The New York Times had an editorial saying, well, why do we understand he's Negro ministers. He can be talking about civil rights. Why is he talking about foreign policy? They so didn't get it. He got it. more blacks are dying proportionally in Vietnam than in place else. But that wasn't even the major issue. He pointed that out, but there was. the major issue was that we should not be there and we're killing innocent people.
0: It's not. A year to the day, April 4, 1967, Dr. King was murdered April 4, 1968. He had made a speech coming out against the war. Mark, I know you've done extensive study on the assassination of Dr. King. Do you think that's what got him killed when he finally came out against the war? Yes,
1: I, I believe so. Because even the liberals who, in the North who supported him he really started talking about discrimination in Chicago. He said, you know, Dr. King said the worst reception he ever got was not in Mississippi, not Alabama, not Georgia. Even in, in, in the old Stone Hill in Georgia, the in Mississippi, the biggest opposition he found was in Chicago mm-hmm. and in other northern cities when he talked about ending segregation there. He had been warned. By people there that he was going too far even on civil rights taking on the North the North's problems with the racial Injustice. So he was losing some of that support, but then when he came out against the war, were many people said that he should not be involved in that. He's a black minister. He should be talking about civil rights. And that weakened him a bit, and it encouraged people. And the, the FBI had a Destroy King squad. I interviewed an FBI agent, Arthur Murphy, who worked for it, and the idea was to destroy Martin Luther King. And of course, Hoover had a tape sent to him, which he felt showed that Dr. King was involved in uh, sexual activity. With someone who was not his wife couldn't tell anything but it. it was a video audio tape he couldn't even tell anyway but at the same time dr king was saying we're putting together a documentary let me do these tapes to me and so they got thousands of tapes and it took months before dr king even got that tape because it got lost in all the rest but when he did he met with the andy young and the other people around and ralph all these guys who were part of his team and he said they want me dead because hoover had it sent and said, in essence, if you don't kill yourself, this will be released. And he said, he's talking about my dying. Yeah. He wants to be dead. Everything's changed up. Soon after that, he was killed, and he was not killed by James Earl There's no doubt in my mind that all the evidence shows that the Destroy King squad based in Atlanta was an agency of Hoover designed to destroy Dr. King and kill him. FBI agent Arthur Murtaugh told me that they knew that if they ever heard that someone was going to try to kill King, the FBI would step aside and let it happen. That's not very far from actually doing it. And that that was that was the that was the policy. And after he was dead, the Destroy King Squad became the Destroy Coretta King Squad. They wanted to erase his memory, and they began doing things to harass her as well. That's all according to the FBI agent who was a member of it, who I interviewed. And there's no doubt about that. Hoover wanted him dead, and then he was dead. And I think that's where you start if you're going to have a serious investigation, which of course nobody's ever had in this country about that.
0: About that. Do you want to take, get a glass of water? Because if you're okay with it. That- I would like to continue with the assassination of Dr. King. Sure, that's fine. Folks, we're speaking with Mark Lane, of course, and as always with Mark, you know, we always start off, I always say, okay, Mark, 20-minute interview, for sure, that's it. <laughs> when you're speaking with a guy of, of such stature and integrity as Mark Lane, if he's willing to go that extra little bit for us, man, am I ever going to take advantage of that. Can
1: I change the subject for a second?
0: Absolutely, subject, please
1: do. Something that you might find interesting. During the war against the people of Vietnam, mm-hmm. I received a phone call from a person I know who was very active in opposition to the war. And he said, there's someone who wants to meet with you. And I said, okay, who is he? Could You have my office address. He said, he's in Washington, but I don't think you should meet him at the office. I said, why? He said, well, he's a little shy about going to your office. He said, okay, where, where does he want to meet? He said, could you pick a place? I said, yeah, the American Cafe on Constitution Avenue is just around a block or two from my office. and I can meet him there. How will I recognize him? He He'll recognize you. So we agreed to meet later that uh, lunchtime, before we were after lunch, and a a very slim, small Vietnamese man, young man, was there. And he said, You're Mr. Lane. And I said, yes. He said, can I talk with you? I said, sure. He said, I'm a pilot in the Vietnamese
0: Air Force. Ah, the Canada story. Okay. You know the story? No, nope, like, but we were supposed to discuss it. If you want to go with that right yeah. now, that's great. Okay. It's a story that nobody knows. I know, I know, I know. I hear you all right now, but I had to cut the show somewhere. It was originally supposed to be a 25-minute interview maximum, and it turned into, with Mark Lane as always, because this guy's living history. If he's going to give me the time, I'm going to take advantage of that It turned into a little over an hour long I've edited it down some But a little over an hour long interview Coming up tomorrow with Mark Lane We're going to be talking more about Dr. King How Mark helped set up the first mass rally in Harlem for Dr. King The assassination We're going to be talking about Bobby Kennedy And the Kennedy assassination And Bobby's role or lack of role in investigating that Lots more to come with Mark Lane. triple W. You will not miss the second part of this show. Do not worry. All the shows are there for you. all the shows are there for you to download free. No worries. triple dot com. This is real history, folks. This is the real deal. These are the folks that went through the times. It doesn't get any more real than that. I'm Brent Holland. Thank you all for listening. See you next time.